Hi, this is Michael Shapiro, and welcome back to the Delacorte Review Podcast, where in each episode we talk with a writer about how his or her story came to be, meaning all that went wrong and ultimately right in bringing to life a story that needed to be told. As in season one, each of these writers has a story that appears in this issue of the review, five stories built around a single theme. In this issue, that theme is silence. Natasha Rodriguez studied in Havana while she was in college and loved the place with all its charm and chaos and, yes, absurdity. How to make sense of a place that is at once small and vast, a place that can overwhelm the senses. The answer in this story, as in all such stories, is to find a narrow lens. Natasha chose rap, Cubans rap, and some of them do so for a living. That is if the government deems their rapping appropriate. And if that sounds absurd to you, imagine how it sounded to Natasha. So your story takes you and us to Cuba. So where, why did you go and what were you looking for? So I've been to Cuba twice before. Um, once I was studying abroad there, I was there for a good couple of months and then I, I went again on vacation and each time I went it was a completely different experience um, and Cuba is just the most complicated place I've ever been to and it's so easy to write about Cuba and it's also so difficult because there's so much scenery there there's so much culture there's there's so much going on there and that's what makes it so complicated because you know everything that the U.S. says about Cuba is not exactly right, and everything that the Cuban government says about Cuba is not exactly right either. There's, like, some sort of truth somewhere in the middle. And I think I was just kind of drawn to that complexity, and I'd always wanted to, to do something in Cuba. Um, and so I just decided to go. I knew a bit about the rap scene, but not that much. And I couldn't, re I couldn't report from New York um, so I just decided to, to fly down and see what I could find. Before we talk the rap, with, with, with the rap scene there, which is, of course, what the story is really about, when you, you make an interesting point that on one hand, it's really easy to write about because it's, you're bombarded with so many images and s things to see and things that you hear. But on the other hand, that makes it hard. How, why is that hard? I think it's like um, what I write about a bit, which is with the U.S. perspective, there's so much to write about in kind of as it relates to like poverty porn because, you know, everyone goes to Cuba. They take pictures in front of the old cars, in front of these beautiful, colorful buildings that are crumbling. Um, everything's kind of in disrepair. And they're so it's also kind of beautiful in a messed up way and and so it's such a it's such an easy place to write like great descriptions about and there's so many easy things to focus on and so what makes it complicated is trying to get deeper and seeing you know trying to really talk to people and and seeing past these old cars and you know Fidel Castro and Che Guevara you know you say something interesting too which is that when you're writing about a really complicated place and a really complicated story with so many moving parts, you've got to come up with something seemingly simple, one 
kind of theme, and you choose rap. Why? Um, when I was uh, a student at the University of Havana, I went to this, it's kind of like this underground rap concert. Um, it was in a basement of a house <coughs> in, on the outskirts of Havana. And I hadn't ever seen anything like that. Um, it was in a basement. People were talking about things that I people weren't talking about when I was at the University of Havana. Um, and it kind of stuck with me, but I didn't really think anything of it. And then I started researching, looking at the the birth of of rap in Cuba, and I found out that there was a Cuban rap agency, which to me was a completely bizarre concept. And I kept doing my research, and I was like, wow, you know, there's so much that's said about, you know, the 1990s and rap in Cuba, and now I haven't heard anything about it. I wonder, I wonder if it's all underground, or, and I wonder, you know, what, what's happened to it. I have to stop you for a second. The Cuban rap agency? Yes. <laughs> what is that? So, um, Basically, everything in Cuba goes through the government and is controlled by the government. So there's the Ministry of Culture, and there are many wings of the Ministry of Culture. I think there's like a alternative music agency, um, and there's a rap agency, which was created in the 1990s by the government as a way to control rap, because a lot of rappers were talking about things the government didn't want them to talk about. So they created the Cuban Rap Agency. They put out magazines. They gave uh, equipment to artists, and that way they were able to control um, what they were saying. So the idea, the absurdity of the idea, at least from an American perspective, of regulating music that is seems to be the opposite of regulatable music what do they do? I mean, are there a bunch of guys sitting in a room saying, okay, you next perform for us and we'll decide if you're good or not? Basically, you can apply um, to be an artist under the Cuban Rap Agency. Again, like, because it's Cuba, it's very complicated, but my piece is talking about this new law that would essentially make it impossible for any artist to perform in public unless they're signed to an agency. So you kind of need to be a part of the agency if you want to um, rap in public. And yeah, you audition, and if they like you, um, it can take up to like two years, but you can get papers, and that means that you are a professional artist. If you are not signed to an agency, you're not a professional artist. You go there, and the story changes. Yeah, that always happens. I think a lot of writers don't understand or get, they do understand, but they think it's somehow their fault. Like the story changes, like, wait a second, but I proposed this or I had this idea and I begin to report and it turns out to be something else. When that happened to you in this time, and you obviously you've done stories before, but when that happened to you this time, did that make you excited, nervous, anxious, or sense of inevitable? I definitely was expecting it to happen. It always happens in journalism, and it's Cuba, so of course it was going to happen. I had no idea what to expect. I pitched something about underground rap, and it didn't end up being about underground rap, and that wasn't a problem at all. I'm very glad that I found a story. <laughs> yeah. um, but I, I guess I was excited. Um, 
I had met Yosvel uh, when I studied abroad there briefly, but I had no idea about his childhood or anything. And he was the first person I sat down and talked to. And, and after talking to him, I was very excited. Tell us about him. Who Who is Yosvel? So Yosvel is, I, th- I believe now he's 24. He's a 24-year-old rapper in Cuba, and he got his start when he was seven years old. He was discovered by a member of Buena Vista Social Club, and they asked him to rap over a song, and he did. And he kind of became famous in Cuba for some time. He was in this music video by Equis Alfonso, who is a super famous uh, alternative musician in Cuba, and he's performed for Fidel Castro. He's He was part of the rap movement when it was big in the 90s, and then he's kind of kept trying to, to do rap as he sees more people leave it or more people leave the country or more people switch over to reggaeton, and he's still trying to do rap because that's... I mean, he's been doing it since he was seven. That's his identity. So why rap if no if there's no audience for it i mean that's maybe that's like why focus on rap or why do people rap why do they rap why do they rap if as you're saying but nobody listens to rap in cuba um i think that people rap because i think yosvel says something that was that was interesting to me that he he kind of i feel like he does this for everyday cubans who are struggling, who are working hard. I think rap is a way for people to express their love for their country and also to say, hey, like, I know that you're struggling and we're all struggling and this all kind of sucks. And in that, that's, I mean, I think that that's very meaningful. And I also understand why people don't want to listen to rap because it just reminds them of their realities. And a lot of times the realities are really shitty. When... You sat down with him. How did the story begin to change as just in that first reintroduction to him in that conversation? Well, I think it began to change because, number one, he's not an underground rapper. Um, He performs publicly. It was funny that talking to all of these rappers that I did talk to, this new law that was coming out was not something any of them mentioned in the beginning because... It wasn't anything of note to them because it's Cuba. The government's always trying to control you. So that that wasn't anything that stuck out to them as, as something that I should know. But I think it started to change in that I, I saw how these people have all of these dreams of They want people to listen to their music, and they want people outside of Cuba to listen to their music. And they work on that every single day, even though the chances of that happening are so, so, so slim. And I think that's kind of what I wanted to focus on, is these people that are kind of fighting against all the odds to have people listen to what they have to say. So this initial conversation you have with him then sets you off on a reporting journey, right? You begin, who do you... Where do you go next? Who do you see next and talk about? I think next I saw, I went to La Fabrica de Arte Cubano and La Arena y La Real were performing. And I was blown away by them. They are so talented. So this, and tell us about this venue where you, where you saw them. 
So La Fabrica de Arte Cubano is this giant like cultural space in Cuba. It used to be a peanut oil factory. And there are many, many floors and different rooms. And they have music concerts and DJs and art galleries and fashion shows and movie screenings. And it costs $2 to get in. So a lot of the people who come in, uh, I would say at least 50% are tourists. And the rest are like Cuban elite or people who somehow managed to get in because the average Cuban makes $30 a month. So think about the $2 entrance is a lot of money. Yeah. Um, but they're kind of, they're one of the only venues that has a bit of rap in it. And I think perhaps one of those reasons is because there's such an international clientele there. And, you know, rap is huge in, in the U.S., Everyone listens to rap, or most people do, but not in Cuba. And I think perhaps that's one of the reasons why Fabrica is still putting on rap shows. How, when you come back and begin to distill this and you begin to go through all these notes and translating everything from Spanish to English, do you find yourself, how do you begin to react to, as you relive the experience of meeting these people, how how do do they come alive to you? now that you're going through what they had to tell you and thinking about their lives. What do you mean, how did they come alive? Do you admire them more? Are you, do you sort of roll your eyes and go give it up? Or do you say, oh, no. wow, you guys are kind of amazing? Of course, I think they're all kind of amazing. Um, yeah, I, I admire their resilience a lot. I know that it's, I mean, even here, trying to make it in music or any sort of art, it's really, really difficult. Imagine trying to do that in a place where everything is working against you and you're still doing it. These are people who are super, super, super passionate about what they do, and that's what I was trying to tell a story about. They're not, they're not giving up still, and it's very impressive. You know, we always talk about things that go wrong in a story and the struggle to do it, but part of this is there's also moments when you're reporting and you're writing that are just a joy. What were those moments in this one? (laughs) Definitely more in the reporting. Um, I think something that the most exciting thing was just getting to meet these people and talk to them and see them perform. That was seeing them perform because that's what all they want to do. That was wonderful. And seeing people react to their performances was wonderful. It, for me personally, getting going to Cuba for the first time for this piece and getting off of the airplane and smelling the smell that I smelled. I was like, wow, I'm in Cuba as a journalist and hopefully I find something. And that was super exciting because nothing smells like Cuba. I don't know if you know what I mean, but I've been there a now four or five times and there's just this this Cuban smell (laughs) you smell the second you get off the plane you're like wow I'm here what is the smell? I feel like it's like car exhaust and soap and (laughs) and like tobacco I don't know but it's just like unmistakably Cuban and I've never smelled it anywhere else Um, but I think yeah just it was very exciting to be there and and get to do whatever I wanted to do. 
And it was also scary. Scary in what sense? I mean, I feel like it, it was just a lot of responsibility, but it's also not easy being alone in Cuba. Uh, you're completely isolated, basically. You don't have regular access to internet. Uh, you you can't call people whenever you want. Uh, you don't know if you're gonna if you're gonna get to talk to anyone or. The, the thing about, about reporting in Cuba is that you can't schedule all your interviews before you get there. So I went to Cuba, tried to meet all these people, and tried, tried to schedule all the interviews for when I was there. And it didn't always work out, and that was very, very stressful. And also sometimes it's just the most isolating place, and being there alone is, you know, not easy, I guess. Before we stop, you have, there was one refrain that you have in the piece, which is, Cuba is changing. What do you mean? Yeah, so my whole thing is that everyone who goes to Cuba is like, oh, it's like the 1950s. It's like stuck in time. It's frozen in time. And Cuba's never been frozen in time. Like, there's people who live there and are growing up and are dying and being born. And it's never it's never been frozen in time. I think that's a really stupid thing to say. Um, it's not this vintage, old-fashioned place. There's always change there and there's cha- every a lot of changes that happen in the outside world affect Cuba even though it's so isolated and cut off uh, I know like a lo- they've had they had the same uh, leader for a really long time but there were still things changing there's always laws changing uh, there's you know they now the internet has opened up some things and and now it seems like maybe the U.S.-Cuban relationships have have has gone kind of sour again. It's there's there's just always things happening and going on. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Delacour Review podcast. If you are a writer or have friends who, like all writers, is struggling to tell the story that he or she needs to tell, we invite you to share this podcast with them, along with those from season one. You can find this story and the others in issue number two at www.delacortreview, that's one word, delacortreview.org, where you can sign up for our newsletter. You can also follow us on Twitter at Delacort Review. The Delacort Review appears three times a year, winter, spring, and fall and its home is the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. The podcast is produced by Katie Ferguson, and the theme music you hear is by Jim Okar. The editor of the Delacorte Review is Mike Hoyt. Our senior editor is Sissy Falligan, and associate editors are Natasha Rodriguez and Abigail Covington. Our illustrator is Eleanor Hamelin. We'll see you next time.